Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolaski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by character actor Stephen Tobolaski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the SlashFilm podcast. And joining me today, as always, he is the man who played Tom Abernathy in Miss Congeniality 2, Armed and Fabulous, Stephen Tobolaski. <laughs> oh, that that's fabulous. That's great. You know, in, in that particular show, uh, I was not originally Tom Abernathy. Oh, really? You what know, was your I, original role in Miss Congeniality 2? Yeah, I was, I, was not, I was not in the movie at all. Um, uh, Jeffrey Tambor played Tom Abernathy. And they wanted to do reshoots of that movie, and Jeff did not want to do the reshoots, so they had to recast the entire role. So they, they brought me in and they pulled an Oliver Reed on me in that they used my face. And, and on some of the long shots they had already shot with Jeff, they CGI'd my face onto his body. Wow. So there is a hybrid vehicle operating in that movie that I think a lot of people may not be aware of. Well, uh, his, uh, Jeffrey Tambor's loss is your and our gain. Uh, for getting to see you <laughs> I did in get, get to meet Sandra Bullock, who was an extraordinary individual. We could talk about her some other time. Yeah, well, she's had a fantastic year. Uh, 2009 was pretty tremendous for her. But in yeah. any case, uh, let's get on with the show, Stephen. You know, uh, something that I have been gratified at being able to sort of facilitate as a result of this show is getting you in touch with uh, some of your fans. And um, you have a new email address now, uh, stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And people email in about the show pretty regularly. Um, well, just pat yourself on the back there, David. You know, I spend half my day now answering the emails. But I've got to tell you, it has been... Uh, an incredible experience. I, I will pat you on the back. I was joking there. Thanks. Uh, it's been an incredible experience because not only do I get direct feedback from everybody, uh, and usually the only people who write are people who like the show. Because if you think it sucks, you usually don't write. Or I get great ideas for shows, uh, like next week's show is going to uh, feature some stories about heroes that a lot of people requested. But another thing that happens is, which I certainly didn't expect, is that I get a lot of questions that people have that, that are just going through a terrible time in their life and they're feeling a lot of hurt or a lot of pain or they feel lost or, and they want to know because some of the nature of the podcast have been about life crises and not just show business. They wanted to know what my take would be on a certain crisis. And in a way, I dedicate today's show to all those people who've written in talking about the, the various hurts they had in their life. This was a today's show is a particular dramatic moment in my life, and, and I'll give it a little background. Um, every Tuesday and Thursday in college, in the drama department at SMU, they had what was called a conference hour. And all the drama students would come into the Margot Jones Theater to hear someone speak. Now, sometimes it would be a former student who made it good, like Sharon Ulrich, who was in the last picture show. Then she headed off to New York. Uh, it could be a famous makeup artist like Richard Corson, who was talking about his new book and <laughs> selling it in the lobby. 
And uh, at this particular conference hour, it was the head of our acting curriculum, Mr. Jack Clay, who was speaking to all of the actors and saying what an actor needed to know to be a success. Jack Clay, try to get this picture, he was a very distinguished man in his late 50s, a very regal John Hausman with hair type of guy. And he spoke very seriously about the problem proper education of the modern theater student and how woefully inadequate it was. And he said to be an actor, one needs to be expert in comedy, Shakespeare, singing, dancing, and fencing. I kid you not. All of us took Mr. Clay's word as gospel, and I signed up for singing and dancing lessons, tap and jazz. Uh, my friend Jim McClure and I, we took fencing from Emmerich de Gaulle, who was an Olympic champion. Uh, <laughs> of course, we never understood anything he said because it was always in Hungarian. Uh, but we were only sophomores, and we were not allowed to take Shakespeare or comedy classes. Those were part of what was called the professional acting program, and those were reserved for juniors, seniors, graduate students, people who were accepted into the theater department's advanced acting curriculum. Now, another reason the school was all abuzz, besides Mr. Clay's conference hour, was that a new acting professor was joining the staff. Her name was Joan Potter. And it was exciting because unlike most acting teachers, she was no academic. She had been a real actress at the famous Actors Studio in New York taught by Lee Strasberg. She was in the New York production of Chekhov's Three Sisters. She was in an actual movie with Richard Burton. This was as close as any of us had come to a real professional actor. My counselor was the head of the drama department, Bernard Hopgood known affectionately to everyone as Hob. Now, now, you would think to look at him that he was an old beatnik. He was a tall man with a very little goatee, and he smoked cigarettes, and he always wore this beret that he was constantly adjusting at a sporty angle on his bald head. And I would just bet you he had a set of bongo drums in his closet at home. He came up to me one morning after theater history class, which was first period, and whispered that all of the new people were doing their audition pieces for Joan when she arrived, and maybe I wanted to do something, too, to, quote, liven things up. He winked at me and elbowed me in the side, which I interpreted as a hint that I should do a little novelty piece to break up the tedium of the endless freshman auditions for Miss Potter. So I thought about it, and I decided I would do some Shakespeare with a twist. I would do a monologue of Orlando's from As You Like It, which was nice and mundane and all the professors had seen it. But in the middle of it, I would start stripping. At the end of the monologue, I'd be wearing jockey shorts with high hob written on my butt. Then I would turn around, (laughs) bend over, salute the audience with the sign on my jockey shorts. Okay. I know this was in terrible taste, but it was novel. And years later, I found out Beth, who was in the audience that day as one of the freshman auditionees, said she could not believe anyone would do something so crass. I thought it was harmless. I thought it was cute. And I figured this would bring the house down. And I was right. The directing students and the faculty were pretty much on the floor. There were shrieks and screams of delight. The one person who apparently was not amused was Joan Potter. 
Joan was teaching a beginning scene study class for sophomores, and I was doing a scene from the novel A Catcher in the Rye. Uh, and it went over very well. Joan was crying at the end of the scene. And then she asked us to write an essay on how we worked on the parts. So I turned in a four-page paper, which I'm sure was fairly inarticulate in that I had no methodology in acting at this point in time. The next day, Joan returned the papers. She gave me an F. It was the first F I had ever gotten in my life. She said she wanted to see me after class. And I met with her, and she was shaking with fury. She asked me what I thought I was doing. I, I had no idea what she was talking about. She asked me if I was making fun of the process. I said, no. Of course, I didn't know what process she was talking about. I told her I would redo the paper, which I did, which she never gave back. I ran into Hob again in the hallway, and he asked me what I did to Joan. I said, I had no idea. He said, well, she was pretty upset by my attitude. I felt like I had suddenly fallen into a world where people were speaking a different language. I couldn't understand anything that was happening. I had always been a good student. I had always been likable and agreeable to most teachers. And because I was tall, they asked me to put books on the high shelves. And because I was easygoing, they always paired me up with the new kids in school to show them the ropes. And now in one day, I had become like those kids who smoke cigarettes out by the wood shop. I asked Hob what I should do. He shrugged and said, just try to stay off of her bad side. The semester went on. Joan was not overtly hostile to me, nor was she friendly. As far as I was concerned, it was mission accomplished. Near the end of the term, the department announced that each acting teacher would offer two of the best scenes from their classes, and they would all be put together for a small production in the Margot Jones Theater. I was shocked when Joan approached me. She asked me if I would do my Butterflies or Free scene. I, I played a blind songwriter who was meeting a girl for a first date. It was, it was very sweet and romantic, and I played the guitar and sang, which made the scene a little different from anything else in the program. And I remember being so flattered that I stammered to Joan how thrilled I was and how I would love to do the scene. And then Joan lowered her voice and told me that she would want to rehearse with me privately on a couple of sections. And I said, well, absolutely, whatever you want. And she smiled at me and she said, your work in this role is really extraordinary. Victory! I felt like I had won Joan over and the bitterness from the beginning of the year was gone. Joan came up to me the next day and said, how about Thursday at three in the Margot Jones? Well, that was a problem. I told her I couldn't be there at three because I was part of the shop crew and was dismantling the King Lear set at three, but I could be there at five. Joan looked concerned and told me that wouldn't work. She would write a personal letter and get permission for me to miss crew call. I shrugged and said, sure. The next day, Joan told me it was done. She had written a letter, and it was, I was cleared to rehearse, and I met her Thursday at 3, and we worked for a couple of hours alone. She was very attentive and very happy with the changes we had made in the scene, and I told her I felt I was ready to perform. The next morning, first period, Hob came hurrying up to me. He pulled me into the men's room, and he said urgently, Where were you yesterday? I, I, I said, What? He said, Crew call. You missed crew call. 
Oh, I relaxed a little bit. I go, oh, yeah, that? Yeah, Joan wanted me rehearse for the show we were doing in the Margot Jones Theater, and she wrote a note, and she got me out of crew call. Hobbs' bald head turned red. He said, there is no note. And it doesn't matter anyway. In the bylaws of the theater department, it states that the one thing a student cannot do is miss crew call. Under any circumstances, it's an automatic, unsatisfactory critique. It goes on your record. Two unsatisfactories, and you are permanently expelled from the department. The blood drained from my head. I couldn't even talk. I had no idea why Joan would do something like this. I showed up Friday for the opening night of our scene show. She never made eye contact with me. She never spoke to me. I focused on the scene. I thought if the scene went well for the faculty, for the public, and for Joan, this whole thing would go away. The scene was a huge success. We closed the show. We got a standing ovation. Joan never talked to me after the show. A few days later, they posted a list on the bulletin board of all the theater students who had been accepted into the professional acting program. It was always a sort of automatic thing. They put your name on the list. You're invited back to the theater department your junior year. My name was not on the list. I ran to Hobbs' office. I couldn't think. My face was on fire. I walked past his secretary, Edna, who was asking me to wait while she checked to see if Hobbs was available, but I blew right past her into the inner sanctum. Hobbs was behind his desk. I could tell by the way he looked. He already knew. He asked me to sit down. He said that it was wrong, but he said he was writing in my file, quote, Hobbs does not approve, end quote. But all the teachers have a, a vote, yes or no, for a student to be accepted in the professional acting program, and it was five to one. I was blackballed. Joan voted me down. I said, this is nuts. I didn't do anything. H- have you looked at that list? There are people being accepted in the program who haven't even shown up for class because they're too busy smoking pot and listening to Abbey Road. You saw the scene I did the other day. We closed the show. We got a standing ovation. Hobbs shook his head. He said his hands were tied. Joan had ammunition with the unsatisfactory critique. He said, my transferring to another school would not be a realistic option with the unsatisfactory on my record. Hobbs said the best thing for me to do would be to leave. Pick a different major. He said, I could still audition for the plays. I could take general theater courses, theater history. But the acting program, all of the acting classes were off limits. I left Hobbs' office and began walking back to my dorm room, and I walked in that freezing Texas winter. I didn't feel a thing. I was burning with a mixture of fury and failure, and if you haven't tried it, it's a bad mix. In the 15-minute walk back, I saw the end of all my dreams, not to graduate, not to be an actor, shamed in front of all my friends, shamed in front of my new girlfriend, Beth. What would she think? Now, my parents, my parents, they would be sympathetic, but they were not advocates. They never wanted me to be an actor. Anyway, they wanted me to be a lawyer. I got to my room. I sat silently on my bed outside the room. The sun went down. And this was my first real conference hour. No tales of the good old days. No false modesties. It was a conference with myself, with all of my strengths and weaknesses laid bare. One with no answers and with no excuses. 
And in the silence, I remembered a phrase from a religious school that I always thought was pretty catchy, and it always stuck with me. It was from a great Jewish teacher named Hillel that lived roughly at the same time Jesus did. And he said, if I'm not for myself, who is? If I am for myself alone, what am I? And if not now, when? I never knew what that last line meant. If not now, when? I realized Joan Potter had just taught me the meaning of those words. She didn't know it, but she gave me the gift of when. When was now. I devised a plan. It was a plan so outrageous it had absolutely no chance of working. But it, it was at least better than switching over and becoming a business major. No offense. I went back to school in the morning, and I enrolled in all of the professional acting courses in spite of being thrown out of the department. When the night is cold And the land is dark I showed up the next fall with a full slate of professional acting classes on my schedule. I signed up for comedy and Shakespeare from Jack Clay. I had Jones' intermediate scene study class and oral interpretation class. I walked in that first day. Joan almost had a seizure. She refused to look at me for the rest of the period. She gave out assignments, omitting me. And she asked if there were any questions. I raised my hand. She refused to notice me and dismissed the class. The next day, I got strange looks from all of the faculty. Assignments were given out for various classes. Scenes were given out. Partners were chosen. I was ignored. The next morning, leaving theater history class, which is apparently the one class that was happy to have me, Hobb came bustling up to me. He said, I need to see you in my office. And then he walked off, looking very shaken. I went to see him at the end of the next class. I sat down. He closed the door. He sat across from me. He cleared his throat and tried to find the right words. Uh, Stephen, the professional acting curriculum is not an option for you. It's not what I want but we can't allow you in those classes. If we let you in after being removed from the program, then we have no control over who gets in in the future. I'm sorry. I stared at Hobb. I nodded. I let his pronouncements settle in the room while I searched for the right words. I said, Hobb, I'm sorry, but I don't care about your problems or who gets into the program. That's of no concern of mine. The way I see it, I pay you. You accepted my tuition money, which I believe pays your salary and Joan Potter's salary and Jack Clay's salary, so I will be in class. You have your rules, but this is my life. I've always wanted to be an actor, and you people won't stop me. I got up and left, and I paused in the doorway. Again, Hob, I'm sorry. 
I showed up the next day for class. And again, the teachers looked confused, then concerned, and then they continued to ignore me. Over the next two months, I was never given an assignment. I was never called on in class. My tests were never graded. My essays were handed back to me. I still showed up. Some teachers looked at me with irritation. Some, like Joan Potter, only smiled and continued to shut me out. I was not cast in any plays my junior year. Hobb met me one morning after first period, and again he nudged me into the men's room, and we stood at the urinals. Hobb unzipped and started to pee. I stood beside him and did likewise. He said, she's going to do something else. I said, what? He said, I don't know. But in the faculty meeting, she was asking for the requirements to get someone permanently expelled from the school. I told her two unsatisfactory critiques. I said, well, I don't know what else I can do that's unsatisfactory. I've done all of my assignments, whether they've been graded or not. I'm not in any place, so I can't miss any rehearsals. Hobbs said, I'm just warning you. She's going to try to get you kicked out. I said, thanks, Hobb. And we zipped up. We went our separate ways. I took a deep breath, and I thought of my limited options. And to all the young actors out there, I, I have this word of advice. Never underestimate the power of being underestimated. I went to see Tony Graham White, one of the few teachers who liked me because he taught theater history, and everybody hated that but me. He was a short, terribly bright, terribly idiosyncratic Englishman, and he asked me what he could do for me, and I said, a lot. I said, Tony, as a member of the faculty, you can give me the theater comprehensive exam, right? Now, the comprehensive was the graduate test everybody had to take to get a degree. People studied for it forever. They hated it. Tony looked a little surprised, and he said, yes. In fact, he was giving it to the seniors in about a month. I said, Tony, there are no rules against me taking the test early, right? He nodded nervously. I continued, I'm sure you know all about the problems I'm having in the department with one teacher in particular. Tony nodded nervously again. I said, Tony, I want to make sure I take the test, but I don't want anyone to know I'm taking the test. Tony's eyes widened. He'd probably never been so close to such a conspiracy before. I said, I want to take the test next month. Don't have my name on any list. Grade the test, and then if you could just put it in an envelope and save it for me. Tony smiled and said, not a problem. I studied for the next month. I took the comprehensive exam for three hours one Saturday morning. And about a week later in the hallway, Tony walked up alongside of me and he whispered in a very James Bondish sort of way that I had passed with flying colors and the test was in his desk drawer. And then he scurried off on his way. I had a minor victory in this completely undefined war. But come Monday, the reality hit me. I gave it my best shot. And nothing had really changed. I was still being ignored in classes. And that's when my wheels came off the cart. And I never felt so much despair. I remember sitting in Jack Clay's comedy class. He had given out an assignment of working on a comic song. And I decided to do reviewing the situation you know, from Fagan and Oliver. And the night before, I started to look at the lyric sheet and I... I I made an uncharacteristic decision to blow it off. 
I can no longer muster the energy for preparing another assignment and not be called on. I went to Mr. Clay's class the next day, settled in for a big helping of much of the same. This time, in fact, I was counting on it, but it was not to be. Jack said, who's first up with their song? And several of the students in the front rows raised their hand with such enthusiasm that they almost dislocated their shoulders. But Jack looked past them, and he fixed his gaze on me. Mr. Tobolowsky, why don't you show us what you've worked on? Silence. I didn't move. I was in double shock. First, at being called on, and secondly, the only preparation I had done was in the shower a week ago. I walked up to the front of the class. I began to wing it. I am reviewing the situation. And I got through the first verse and part of the chorus when Jack Clay called out, stop, stop, stop. This is unacceptable. This is shoddy and unprofessional and I won't have it. Did you work on this at all? I shifted on my feet ashamed. No, sir. Mr. Clay never let down his gaze. His look went right through me. Then he lowered his eyes and began to pretend to write something in his little book, and under his breath he muttered, well, at least you're honest about it. He looked up at me again. He said, next class you will bring in this song, Prepared, and you will bring in another song as well. Do you understand? I said, yes, sir. And he said, you will never come to this class unprepared again. Do you understand? Yes, sir. The next day was Mr. Clay's Shakespeare class. He called on me first to present my monologue. It was a short speech from a winter's tale. Needless to say, I was prepared. Jack Clay damned me with faint praise, saying that it was decent for a first time through, but that was only scratching the surface of the character. He said for the next class, he wanted me to take this to the next level. I nodded and headed back to my seat. Mr. Clay stopped me. And I want you to prepare two more monologues, another from A Winner's Tale and the speech from the ghost in Hamlet. Again, his gaze stopped. I nodded. The class was embarrassed for me, as if I'd just been publicly chided. They had no idea they were witness to an act of indescribable kindness. I walked back to my seat, looking at Mr. Clay. He met my eye. And then he looked down at that stupid book again and pretended to write something else down. I don't think he ever wrote anything in that book. For the rest of the year and throughout my senior year, Jack Clay doubled and tripled my workload. He criticized me continually, but fairly. He pushed me. He gave me extra reading to do. He would not, not accept less than completely professional work. Jack Clay gave me more than an education. He gave me a hope when I had absolutely none. He was the wild card that made my hand a winner. His attention to me at this time of crisis was completely unsolicited, completely unexpected, and it completely dismantled Joan Potter's attacks on me. Years later, when I worked on Groundhog's Day, Harold Ramis said that show business is impossible. And to succeed, you have to have at least four heroes. Now, I've already mentioned on these podcasts, Alan Parker is one of my heroes. Jack Clay is another. Slight digression. I should mention two curious details that also mark these years at SMU. First is the attitude of the other students. They remain my friend and considered the events happening 
to me as unrelated to them as a tornado in the next county. They still pursued Joan's favor, and they were unconcerned that I was treated differently and shut out in terms of getting parts. It really didn't affect them or their aspirations. So no one stood up for me for fear of getting the same treatment. Now, you multiply that human trait out, and you can see how abusive governments can commit any number of atrocities. Secondly, it should be noted, and this is really curious, Joan gave me A's in her class. I know it's surprising. You would think from every movie you ever saw about abusive teachers that it's all done by giving a student a bad grade. I have no answers, only theories. Perhaps she had good days and bad days. Maybe I reminded her of a bad first date she had. Perhaps she knew that an artificially bad grade would be a tip-off to parents and administrators that something untoward was going on in the drama department. And she had deeper, darker plans for me. And an A in her class would provide a perfect cover. One of her final assaults on me came near the end of my senior year. Hobb called me into his office. He said he had bad news. Joan Potter was going to get me a second unsatisfactory critique for having a poor attitude in her class. She apparently waited to spring it on me at the end of my senior year. Hobbs said with the previous unsatisfactory critique, it would mean I would be expelled from the school with two weeks of class left, and I would not be allowed to graduate. I asked why. He said, well, because you won't be able to take the comprehensive exam at the end of the year. You'll have the credits and the grades, but you need the exam to graduate. Don't worry, I'm going to write a note on your file that I did not approve of how this came down. I said, but Hobbs, I've taken the comprehensive He said, well, well, that's impossible. We haven't given it yet. I said, Hob, I took it last year as a junior. It's in Tony Graham White's office. Hob had an incredulous look on his face. Really? I go, yep. Hob tapped his fingers on the desk. Well, if that's true, all you would need is the oral exam. I nodded. Hob picked up his phone and dialed a number. Tony, Hob here. I heard that Stephen Tobolowsky has already taken the comprehensive exam. There was a pause, and I could hear electronic English jabber on the other end of the line. Well, do you have it? Pause. Hobb raised his eyebrows and hung up the phone. A couple of minutes later, Tony Graham White sauntered into the office with a large manila envelope. He handed it to Hobb. He gave me a devil-may-care 007 nod and left. A week later, I was invited into my oral exams with all of my professors presided by Jack Clay. I answered a couple questions about what I thought were the important elements of the Stanislavski method. Jack Clay asked me what was my focus of study at SMU. I said, well, I studied singing, dancing, fencing, comedy, and Shakespeare. And as a result, I think all I really learned was how much I don't know. The professors laughed a little. At this, Joan exploded. Well, I'm not sitting for this bullshit anymore. If you're just going to pass everyone through, you don't need me here. And she stormed out of the room, slamming the door behind her. And we all sat still for a long beat. No one looked at anyone. Jack Clay, in a low, dignified tone, said, Where were we? I said, You asked me what I had learned here in the theater department. Right, right, said Jack. I said, I'm sorry she left. There was a little bit of low, nervous laughter. I said, no, seriously. I liked her classes. 
I graduated in 1973. I was awarded the Edith Renshaw Award for Outstanding Undergraduate Student. In 1982, I did my first Broadway play, and Joan Potter came backstage to say hello to all the SMU alums in the show. I saw her in the hallway outside my dressing room. We caught each other's eye in my makeup mirror, and she leaned in over the backstage den. She shouted, you're still no good. In 2008, I heard that Joan Potter passed away. And as with any prominent person in our lives, I tried to make some sense of what happened. The years tell a story. After I graduated, Joan continued to teach successfully at SMU. She taught at Westchester, New York, and was considered by many of her students to be their favorite acting teacher. I have no idea why I became the focus of so much of Joan's energy for three years. And I still have no idea what caused such a pointed pursuit. From the Shakespeare Jack Clay taught me to study, I can only cite Julius Caesar, Act 3, Scene 2. The evil men do lives after them. The good is oft interred in their bones. Last year, I was asked to come back to SMU to be a featured guest at conference hour. And I spoke about my career and auditions. And I looked at all of those young faces and wondered if I was ever that young. And one girl asked me what I would say was the most important thing an actor needs to learn to be successful. I told her, not Shakespeare. The students laughed. And I said, definitely not fencing. I said, no, no, Shakespeare is great. It got me through Deadwood. But seriously, the most important thing you need to learn is something I was lucky enough to learn here. Along the way, many people will tell you no, that you can't do it, and that you have to go home. You have to survive that and to stand up to that and say, this is my life and this is what I'm doing. Fairly or unfairly, many people are tried in life. The mistake people make is they think that the trial is a sign of failure. It's not. It's only a doorway that leads you to who you really are. And when the sky should crumble and fall and the mountains should tumble to the sea I won't be That was Conference Hour, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, care to share with people where they can get more acting advice from you if they'd like to? <laughs> I would love to. It's been such an education for me, too. It really is. Uh, it's stephentobolowsky at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling at gmail.com and also David at Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash Tobolowsky is that nice right? yes that is correct wow oh, this is so great this is very exciting right. the first time Stephen has memorized his Twitter address but uh, yes. you can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky that's Dave Chen S-K-Y and you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Chen David and email me at slash filmcast at gmail.com if you'd like to hear I, I'm sorry go ahead Stephen oh I, I 
when you're done, I have a thank you to give out. Okay, well, uh, I was just going to say, um, if you'd like to hear every other episode of the Tobolowsky Files, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or go to tobolowskyfiles.com. Uh, of course, we want to give a big thanks to slashfilm.com for hosting all of this and making the Tobolowsky Files possible. But, uh, Stephen, what were you going to say? I wanted to thank so many people in the last three weeks have gone out and watched or bought Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. And uh, I, they either got it on Amazon or stbpmovie.com or one of those places. And I want to thank everybody so much. Uh, it has been very heartening to me and to uh, Robert Brinkman. It put a smile on Robert's face. And believe me, he's German, and that's hard to do. <laughs> so I, I really want to thank everybody. Uh, Robert Brinkman, of course, the director of uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party. But uh, yes, you can always find it on Amazon, on Netflix, and at stbpmovie.com. Finally, I just want to ask people, if you have a chance, please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps us to increase the profile of the show, helps other people to see that people are enjoying the show, helps iTunes to see that people are enjoying the show, and um, pass the show along to your friends. We'd really appreciate it uh, just to uh, help spread the good word about the Tobolowsky Files. So that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. Join us again next week for another series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowski. See you guys later. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>